Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Friday, February 2nd. The war in the Middle East is now 119 days old, and it's been six days without a U.S. response to the Iran-backed attack on our troops in Jordan. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research and Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. Well, it's Groundhog's Day, the only day in the calendar named after a large rodent. And I can't help but recall that classic movie where Bill Murray wakes up every day and everything is the same what I would give for that. Right now, the only thing that stays the same every day is the constant churn of news, which is why we created the FTD Morning Brief. You'll get our best roundup of that rapid change every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So keep tuning in regardless of how many more weeks we have of winter. In a few weeks, a few minutes, I'll be joined by Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida. Mike served for years in U.S. Army Special Forces with combat experience in Afghanistan. Mike knows a lot about Iran, Hamas, and the enemies of peace in the Middle East. He's a rising star in the Republican Party, but we're not partisan here. We focus on policy, not politics, and stay tuned for a Democratic legislator to weigh in here in a future episode soon. Let's talk about that executive action by the White House yesterday sanctioning four somewhat random Israeli settlers. They said it was designed to, quote, promote peace security and stability in the in the West Bank. I'm just not buying it. First, the US doesn't sanction individuals in allied countries until all other options are exhausted. This is especially the case with democratic allies with a functioning judiciary and capable law enforcement. Israel checks all of those boxes. So what gives? Second, the White House leaked that two right-wing Israeli politicians, Itamar Ben-Gvir and Bezalel Smotrich, were being considered for sanctions too. And believe me, I carry no water for those two. Their idiotic rhetoric and actions have undermined Israel over the last year in ways that I can't even begin to describe. But the White House leak was juvenile. Look, I, I believe in the rule of law. And if the sanctioning of settlers makes sense because they were acting outside of the law, well, then they had it coming. But having worked sanctions in the U.S. government for many years, my question is this. Did we not have more important bad guys to sanction? I mean, I haven't seen the U.S. hit one bad guy in Qatar since this thing began, and Qatar is a state sponsor of Hamas. So how to interpret all of this? Just look at where the president visited yesterday. He was in Michigan, stumping for a second presidential term. And I'm pretty sure that a good number of Michiganders, particularly in Dearborn, don't support Israel's war against Hamas. So if I'm reading this right, the president just dunked on a handful of Israeli settlers, wielding the already overstretched U.S. national security bureaucracy, hoping to increase his odds in November. Wise statecraft? Nope. Cringe-inducing? You bet. Now for your headlines. Headline one, the U.S. and the U.K. are weighing recognition of a Palestinian state. This is virtue signaling, folks. The Palestinian Authority is ready for statehood in the same way that I am ready to play center for the Philadelphia 76ers. The PA is corrupt. It funds terrorism. It is detested by a majority of the Palestinians. Oh, and it barely controls the West Bank right now. So why do this? Biden's reasons track back to those aforementioned electoral politics. 
Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of the UK is probably doing this for different reasons, namely to convey a more balanced policy to Britain's considerable and angry Muslim population, which has repeatedly decried the UK's support for Israel since 10-7. But let's zoom out for a second. I'm all for a functioning Palestinian state one day. However, that day is not now, not even close. If the leaders of the world's most important democracies were serious, they would call for a massive reform effort within the PA and then enact it. That would include demanding a new president that isn't 19 years into a four-year term, who wasn't born one day after water was invented, and who lacks the moral integrity of Tony Soprano. Headline two. The Israelis and the Egyptians may have reached an understanding about Israeli operations in the town of Rafah. Here's what we know. Israeli Channel 11 is reporting that uh, Egypt has given a tacit green light for Israel to head to the last major center of Hamas operations in the Gaza Strip. An Egyptian source told Channel 11 that the Israelis promised that there would be no spillover of Gazans into Egypt. This is apparently the Sisi regime's red line. But that's not the real story. As we have previously discussed, the Israelis are likely to find tunnels along this border. And when they do, the Egyptians will have some explaining to do. Perhaps the two sides have agreed to keep all this quiet and finally work together to ensure that Hamas weapons can no longer enter and Hamas leaders can no longer exit the Gaza Strip. That would be good news. Fingers crossed. And headline three, Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant announced yesterday that 10,000 Hamas fighters were killed in the war so far and that another 10,000 have been injured to the point that they will not return to the battlefield. In other words, the fighting force of Hamas has been depleted to about two-thirds since the battle began on 10-7. Hamas is hurting, folks, and if Israel is able to take the fight to Rafah, it could be the last major battle in the war. There will be a lot of work to do after that, destroying tunnels and other infrastructure, and there will be clashes and skirmishes between the IDF and armed groups for quite some time. But Israel seems to be on the cusp of doing what everyone keeps saying that it can't do. They might be on the cusp of victory. But let's remember George W. Bush on that aircraft carrier. There should be no declarations of mission accomplished here. There are no permanent victories in Gaza a tough place. There is also that messy thing called the day after. Oh, and then there's the war awaiting Israel and Lebanon. Oh yeah, and the Shiite militias of Iraq and Syria, they're not going anywhere. Plus the radical regime in Iran may still try to make a dash for a nuke. So let's just put it this way. The defeat of Hamas might be the end of the beginning, but it is definitely not the beginning of the end. Okay, I'm pleased now to introduce you to Congressman Mike Waltz. He's a decorated combat veteran, entrepreneur, former scholar at FDD, and now a representative of the great state of Florida and the U.S. Congress. There are few legislators who know foreign affairs better than Mike, who serves on key committees, armed services, foreign affairs, and intelligence. I'm proud to have known him before he became an elected representative. Welcome, Congressman. Hey, John, good to be with you again. You have me okay? Yep, hear you loud and clear. All right, great. All right, well, let's start by getting the audience acquainted with your background. Maybe just give us a little bit on the experiences that you had in Afghanistan and what you learned there about our enemies. Well, I, I think, as you mentioned, I served 27 years, retired as a colonel uh, across, uh, not just uh, in Afghanistan, but across the Middle East and Africa as well. Uh, uniquely, 
Uh, I don't know if a lot of people realize that both the Navy SEALs and Army Special Forces have reserve units. Uh, and what was somewhat unique about my experience that I later wrote a book about warrior diplomat was I served as a civilian in uh, in the Pentagon and the White House. And so literally there I was in the White House Situation Room, Mr. President, this should be the policy in the war on terror and then would get mobilized and be one of the few people in Washington, I guess, that had to actually go do it. Uh, and then the really fascinating part, uh, John, would be coming back, going back into the, taking the uniform off, going back in the White House and saying, hey boss, uh, here's what's really going on in the ground. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, what they were getting fed was, was a bunch of baloney, uh, and give them that ground truth and speak that speak that truth to power. So it did that for years, uh, built a company in between that's near and dear to your heart, really enforcing sanctions and going after bad guy money uh, around the world. And uh, <laughs> as my wife says, I'm a masochist, all of that wasn't enough. And now I dove into, dove into politics, but really uh, honored to serve on the committees that you mentioned. I'm now chairman of military readiness. Uh, which is absolutely, uh, absolutely critical and try to bring all of that business policy, uh, combat leadership time to bear on, um, you know, defending this great nation, which I think is the number one job of the federal government. Almost everything else, I want to keep Washington out of it <laughs> and uh, let our state and locals uh, much more capably take care of it. Well, I thank you for your service. And by the way, I do recommend that book to our uh, listeners and viewers, Warrior Diplomat. Great book. And I think still holds up today. Uh, and I thank you for your service. I do wish that we had more folks serving in the U.S. Congress that had the kind of experience that you do. Um, you recently took the lead on a bipartisan letter calling upon President Biden to adopt stronger maritime defense. I'm assuming this is a direct response to what we've been watching in Yemen. What do you have in mind here? Well, look, I think we need a wake up call, John, that we are no longer a maritime power. Uh, you know, I think people still think of the days of the arsenal of democracy and cranking out liberty ships and we have the largest Navy in the world. Uh, none of that is is now true. Uh, we actually uh, have been outpaced now by China. Their Navy is larger than ours and growing. Uh, our Navy is shrinking. We're retiring more ships than we're building, and the ones that remain are increasingly old and 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 breaking down. Uh, point one. Point two, the way uh, China has done this is a massive expansion of its maritime shipbuilding base, its industrial uh, uh, base. Uh, and just by point of comparison, they have over 5,000 ships flagged in the Chinese Navy. Uh, are the Chinese uh, under Chinese flag? The, I mean, these are broader tanker, oil tankers, container ships, and what have you. Five thousand compared to our less than two hundred. They're building fifteen hundred new large ships a year. We're building less than twenty. So it is by massive magnitude. Uh, and if we had a you know a Reagan style defense buildup ordered uh, tomorrow. We don't have the shipyards, the workers, the steel, the aluminum, the know-how to do it anymore. Uh, and what we're calling—that's why we're—it's a broader maritime strategy. Department of uh, Transportation, uh, our our industrial base, and and otherwise, it takes presidential leadership. Then we can have our navy benefit from that and really start arresting that decline. But 
as we're seeing in in the Red Sea right now, uh, if a ragtag bunch of terrorists uh, armed and backed by a state sponsor can shut down the flow of or divert the flow or make it more expensive and difficult of 20 percent of global trade, that's a huge, huge issue and could be a blow to our economy. I think you're right. Uh, well, I wish you luck with that initiative. I want to ask you about another one that you've got cooking right now, and that is that you wrote a, a, a letter separately with Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz, also of Florida, wrote this to the president calling for the redesignation of the Houthis as a terrorist organization. Obviously, the president came around on this. Uh, it was a bit late in the game, but still it's happened, and I think we should commend that. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening there behind the scenes? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, we had uh, my my fellow Floridian and Democrat, uh, Jared Moskowitz, who is, is very clear eyed about uh, the mistakes uh, the Biden administration. And I don't mean to sound this partisan, but uh, but I'm just going to call out the, the wrong policy where I see it uh, have made uh, in its Middle East policy and its appeasement towards Iran. Uh, step one in that as nearly as soon as he took office after he canceled the Keystone pipeline, which is a whole other issue in terms of our energy policy and how that's driving so much of this instability was that he, you know, um, reversed the designation the Trump administration had made on the Houthis. Uh, and I think something that's been very much underreported was how the uh, Biden as a candidate and the Democrats were really pounding on the Trump administration to push the Saudis and push the Emiratis uh, to back off on its um, uh, on, on its conflict with the Houthis. Our Gulf allies were telling us repeatedly that this is a bad group, uh, that it is wholly backed by Iran. Uh, it, they are they are not our friends uh, and they need to be contained, if not defeated. The Saudis and Emiratis were doing the fighting. We may have disagreed with how they were doing it. But we could work with them on that, but we completely shut down our support to it. Now we're having to do it. Uh, so, so that was point one. And then two, uh, uh, John, that I don't think has also been fully discussed. Just a few months ago, the House uh, was looking at updating a lot of our authorizations, use of military force that date back 20 years to 2001 and in uh, the global war on terror in 2003 in Iraq, part of that update, this is the point I want everybody to understand, the administration came to Congress and argued against the Iranian-backed militias uh, in Iraq and elsewhere being included in a future AUMF. Uh, they thought, we don't need them. We don't need the authorization to go after these guys. And again, there was another step in this appeasement approach uh, towards Tehran. If only we can concede enough, if only we can be kind enough, if only we can get them to the diplomatic table with the Russians as an intermediary, oh, by the way, uh, when it came to uh, JCPOA 2.0, that Iran will behave nicely as well. And I think once again, we've seen, it's like a, it's like a kid getting his lunch money taken you know, day after day after day, sometimes you have to escalate to de-escalate. Sometimes you got to punch the bully in the nose to let him know you mean business and you're going to not put up with it and defend yourself. Uh, but that isn't what we've seen uh, from this administration. We now have dead soldiers and sailors because of it in the Middle East on fire. 
So what's the right strategy there? I mean, that was my next question for you. So we've got three dead service members from uh, that attack in Jordan on Tower 22. Um, the U.S. has now not struck back at uh, Iran-controlled militias or Iran itself. It's been five or six days, depending on how you're counting. What's the right strategy here? I mean, it's not just to obviously, you know, just bomb the heck out of Iran. I mean, uh, there's probably some kind of middle ground. What's the middle ground look like? Yeah, there's a lot of middle ground. And I think that's gotten lost in a lot of the, you know, kind of the headline back and forth. There is a lot of middle ground between these kind of feckless pinprick uh, responsive attacks that we've seen over the last three years uh, in response to Iranian-backed aggression against our forces and sending the Marines into Tehran. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say that's threefold. I'd say in the immediate term, hit targets that Iran cares about. Uh, its operatives that are running around uh, the Middle East, including Soleimani's replacement as the head of the IRGC, including the Quds Force head. And folks need to understand that um, that these Iranians are guiding, training, resourcing, advising. Uh, they are right there on the ground with their militia counterparts, whether it's in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, uh, and even in Yemen. Uh, they have a ship that's been helping the target uh, the Houthis with intelligence, targeting. There's a joint intelligence center with Iranian and Houthis in Yemen. Uh, so there is a number of things we could do outside of Iran uh, to hit Iran in a way that that would uh, truly disrupt its operations. And I think a flawed approach, aside from the impeachment approach that the administration has taken, uh, is not fully appreciating that Iran will trade proxy casualties. They will trade the lives of these militias for American and Israeli lives all day long. That's been a good deal for Tehran for over 20 years now. Uh, you have to take Iranian operatives uh, off the battlefield. One, so that's one. Two, dry up the cash. Uh, and uh, the House has passed the SHIP Act. I would, I would encourage you maybe to, you know, to really highlight that to your viewers and listeners uh, that would put secondary sanctions on the shipping companies, the insurance companies, the Chinese brokers and refineries and buyers uh, that have been buying Iranian oil uh, to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year uh, in violation of international sanctions. And then longer term, John, you know, let's stand with the Iranian people uh, instead of cozying up to the brutal regime in Tehran. Uh, the next time that they bravely stand up and put their own lives on the line, whether that was the Green Movement under Obama or the Masa Amini movement uh, with literally schoolgirls defying uh, the regime's thugs in the streets and getting hung and shot in the streets, let's make our support for them clear. But when they hear silence uh, out of this White House, when, when they get the rug pulled out from under them, uh, it, you know, as they're facing that type of brutality, uh, then uh, it's no wonder the regime has once again been successful in stamping out any type of, uh, of dissent. So just from a basic human decency standpoint, uh, let's stand with the Iranians when they bravely stand up against this dictatorship. Yeah, we just had uh, FTD CEO Mark Dubowitz, who, of course, you know well, talking about that on our last episode. Uh, and I think we all fully agree. Um, last question real quick for you. I know you just called out the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. 
demanding that he look into UNRWA's collaboration with Hamas on 10-7. How's that going so far? And, and, and do you think we can actually shut this agency down? Well, you know, I commend uh, Israeli intelligence for compiling the packet that it did on uh, the UNRWA uh, employees that were actively, I mean, essentially acting as foot soldiers for Hamas. Uh, but, but the broader issue of the high percentage of uh, UNRWA workers and leaders that are related uh, to Hamas terrorists that are sympathetic. Look, we're never going to get out of this issue. Uh, we are never going to even be able to to even think about realistically any type of two-state or peaceful solution that you know the administration and others seems to be so aggressively pressuring the Israeli government on. When you have school kids being taught that they don't want a two-state solution, they want a one-state solution. Uh, if you're going to a school in Gaza run by UNRWA, and that is to eliminate Israel, to chant from the river to the sea, uh, to enact the next genocide, uh, and have a Hamas-led, terrorist-led caliphate. Uh, so we need to be wide-eyed, and I'm glad we're doing everything we can to expose uh, what UNRWA is doing to facilitate that type of terrorism. And then what are we going to do about it? Well, uh, the House passed um, uh, a a bill in terms of its appropriations for the State Department that would defund uh, uh, that part of the UN and drastically cut back a lot of our UN funding because it's not just here, it's the Human Rights Council, it's the WHO and otherwise that I think the UN is doing more to create instability than it is uh, stability. That bill has been sitting at the feet of the Senate. It's been sitting with Chuck Schumer now for, for over six months. Uh, so, I mean, we're doing everything we can in the House to to actually pull our taxpayer dollars back from from uh, this type of atrocious uh, activity. Well, wishing you luck. Thank you, Congressman Mike Waltz, for joining the FDD Morning Brief this morning. Hey, thanks, John. And thanks for everything that FDD does. OK, here's what FDD's tracking today. Uh, my colleague Ord Kittry just published a letter to the editors of Wall Street Journal calling out the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, over there in The Hague for ignoring Hamas's use of human shields and then attempting to depict Israel's act of self-defense as a crime. Ordly, Ord rightly notes that this sets a horrendous precedent for future wars. On the heels of a new report that the UN nuclear inspectors have seen indications of a slowdown on Iran's production of enriched uranium, my colleague Andrea Stricker is warning folks not to uncork the champagne just yet. She reminds us that despite periodic nuclear slowdowns, the regime is still amassing huge quantities of highly enriched uranium, and it remains dangerously close to being able to produce a nuclear weapon. And finally, my colleagues Craig Singleton, Emily de la Bruyere, and Nate Bekarsik are digging into a new Pentagon document which names more than a dozen Chinese companies operating in the United States that answer directly to Beijing's military. FTD's China program has been working hard to undermine China's military civil fusion strategy, that's what it's called, and this includes by shining a light uh, on Chinese companies uh, where American investors are involved. Okay. That's it for today's show. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FDD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at fdd.org slash invest. Thank you for joining us today. Have a great weekend. I'll see you bright and early on Monday for another episode of the FDD Morning Brief. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer signing off for FDD. Mm -hmm.